So we're in Romans 15, verses 8 through 13 today. Romans 15, verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. I've divided this message into three points, three sections. The first is promises made. The second is promises kept. And the third is promises applied. Promises made, promises kept, and promises applied. So the first we're going to talk about is promises made, which is verse 8b through 12. So we're going to talk about the first part of verse 8 in the second point, verse 8a. So that will be where we talk about promise kept. But we're going to start with promises made in verse 8b and read down through verse 12. Verse 8 says this, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. So first we have the promises made, and that promise is that the Gentiles would receive mercy. That the Gentiles would receive mercy. Look at verse 9. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. This promise is that the Gentiles would receive mercy from God. This might not seem like a big, big deal to us, for most of us are Gentiles, most of us are not Jews, and because of that, you're sitting here already believing in Jesus, already believing the Bible, and believing you know, the vast majority of whatever I'm going to say today, you're on board with. Now, put yourself back in the first century. Rewind the clock a little bit. It wasn't a given to the average person walking the streets of whether it be Rome or ancient Israel, it wasn't a given that this program of God, this plan, the promises of God that were described in the Old Testament and that are being played out in the New, it wasn't a given that every single person would have assumed, yeah, this is for me. But actually, a lot of people said, no, this is not for Gentiles, this is for Jews only. There was this sort of built-in assumption that that we the Jews are better than you Gentiles and we the Jews have something special going on and you Gentiles are not involved. You're not allowed to participate. Now, what you will find described here is that the plan has always been to include Gentiles in the people of God. That the, the, the church of Jesus Christ has always been both Jew and Gentile. That This is not some new development. Now, there have been shifts, there have been changes from the Old Testament to the New, but the plan has always been that the Gentiles would receive mercy. The second thing that's part of this promise is that the Gentiles would glorify God. Also look at verse 9. In order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. They're not glorifying God if they don't receive mercy, so the mercy comes first, and then the second thing is that the Gentiles would, would be glorifying God. Now imagine that first century Israel, you've got the temple, and to worship God required going to the temple and participating in the temple worship. 
But that temple has all these courts. It has all these fences. It has all these barriers where you have the the outermost court is the court of the Gentiles. That's where, you know, the visitors can come. Just like any, any person can go in that main courtyard. But then there's a fence that says, you know, Gentiles can't cross this line. You can't come closer. And then beyond that, there's this next court, this next um, area is the court of the women. So the, the women could go in that second area. They're allowed to step over that, that first fence. But then there's this next courtyard with its own fence beyond that where women can't go beyond that. And then beyond that is this third level where Jewish men can go. And th- that type of practice very naturally lead people to think like, okay, well, there's a tiered system here and um, Gentiles can't really go in. Gentiles have to stay on the outside. But the scripture is quite clear that the plan has always been that the Gentiles would glorify God. And then here in our text, we have um, what three, four, four different references given. The first, the end of verse nine, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. This is a quote from 2 Samuel twenty-two fifty, as well as Psalm 1849. Psalm 18 is quoted in 2 Samuel 22. That was something I wasn't really aware of till this last Monday. Like, oh wait, this is Psalm 18 is also Psalm, uh, 2 Samuel 22. They're um, quoted verbatim. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. The Gentiles are among the people of God. They are included in this plan. Look at verse 10. And again, it is said, which is Deuteronomy 32, 43, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. With the people of God, the Gentiles are included. They are brought in to one assembly, to one people. And then again, verse 11, Psalm 117, 1, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all peoples extol him. Then our fourth one is described here, um, Romans 15, verse 12, which is cited from Isaiah eleven ten. In Isaiah, it says, The root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. It's one thing to say, yeah, the Gentiles are allowed to come here and to give something in worship to God. That's easy enough to understand, like saying, yeah, we'll take your money. Yeah, we'll take your, your sacrifices. We'll take your, um, you know, the, the lambs or the cattle or the, whatever it is that you're going to come here and we'll, we'll run it through our butcher shop and uh, we'll, we'll take that. But it's a step further to think, okay, the Gentiles can actually receive something from this too. They're not just giving to God, but they're receiving from God and they're receiving hope. In him will the Gentiles hope. They're receiving a savior. This is the first promise that is made. The promises were given to the patriarchs and he proves it with these four quotations, these four references, which span from the, uh, from the Pentateuch, from, from Moses through to the prophets. That is to say, the entirety of the Old Testament teaches this. He just proves it with four references, but he didn't, didn't even bother getting into things like um, the Abrahamic covenant that God spoke to, to Abraham and said that in you will all the families of the earth be blessed. 
That blessing is not just good vibes, but it's, it's actually spiritual blessing. In you, through Abraham, will all the nations of the world receive salvation. This can be proved throughout the Old Testament. Now, if we're talking about promises made, we have to clarify. There has to be clarification because there are some promises that are not made. So if you've got promises made, there are promises not made as well. And we have to clarify on this, that there are some things that are not promised from God. So you need to hear, you need to understand that you must not assume something is promised from God when it is not promised by God. Because that will lead to disappointment. If you think, no, God has promised me this thing, and maybe he hasn't. Here's some examples of things that are not promises from God. God has not promised you that if you become a Christian, all your problems will go away. He has not promised that if you become a Christian, that you will have lots of money. He has not promised that if you become a Christian, you will have good health. He has not promised that if you become a Christian, your your kids will turn out great. Now, I think that the wisdom of Scripture will help in each of these areas, And a life of obedience to scripture is a more prosperous life. It is a life of less problems. But certainly it is not a promise. You must have biblical hermeneutics, biblical interpretation. When you read the scriptures, you must know how to handle the word. And you've got to understand the differences between promises and principles. So we've got biblical promises, promises made versus promises not made. But you have to understand that in contrast with principles which are given. In order to understand whether something is a promise or a principle, you need to, number one, understand what genre the passage is in. What type of scripture, what type of literature you're reading, and then interpret it in light of that that genre to, to discover its meaning. So, for example, I'm only going to give one example here, and that is that Proverbs are principles, not promises. I'm sorry for all the Ps, but we had promise already, and so. The book of Proverbs contains principles, not promises. It's not a covenant. The book of Proverbs is not a covenant that you make with God. It's not saying, hey, all right, God said, train up a child in the way he should go. When he's old, he'll not depart from it. Therefore, all right, I'm going to do my part. God's going to do his part. And if I read the Bible with my child every single day and pray with him every single day, then it's a guarantee, it's a promise from God that my child will turn out exactly the way I want them to turn out. That's, that's, not, that's not a promise. But it is a principle. But that principle has a dark side to it as well, which is train up a child in the way he should not go. And when he's old, he's, he's probably not going to depart from that as well. If you raise your kid to be a rebellious terrorist from, a, from, from early childhood on, that, that kid's not going to suddenly become a well-behaved angel. But on the other hand, there is redemption. Redemption. And so having a bad upbringing is not a promise. It's not a covenant that was broken by your parents. Therefore, you're trapped in that violated covenant either. It's just a general principle. It's a general truth that is 
When you're raised a certain way, you tend to go that way, but it doesn't mean that you have to stay that way. And there's both a positive and negative side of that. You can either turn out better than you were raised or you can turn out worse than you were raised. So you have to understand the difference between promises and principles. Now beyond that, back to the the things God has not promised us, God has not promised us that all our problems will, will go away or that we'll have lots of money or that, you, that your health will be good or that your t- kids will turn out just the way you want. God has actually promised the opposite of many of these prosperity claims. For, uh, Philippians 1.29 says, It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. You've been promised that if you are a Christian, you will suffer, and you will suffer for him, for his sake. First Peter 4, 12 through 19 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Don't be surprised, as though something strange were happening to you. I tell people, uh, typically I try anyway, before they're baptized and they join the church, I'm like, hey, by the way, your life is probably about to get worse. When you join this church, you now become public enemy number 32 for Satan. There's 31 prior already in the church. So you're joining this. You're you're now on the list of, of enemies of Satan in New York City. I'm not, I'm not saying we're the only Christians in New York, but you know what I'm saying. So don't think that something strange were happening to you, but, verse 13, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. The more you suffer, the more you long for the return of Christ. The more you look forward to seeing Jesus, because you realize, like, okay, this world is not all that I used to think it was. It's not all it's cracked up to be, and actually I'd rather see Jesus. Verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. That being said, again, scripture is very realistic here. It is totally possible for a person who professes to be a Christian to suffer because they're doing bad things. When people ask me, oh, Andy, is New York uh, dangerous? I say, well, not really, but you could get into trouble. If you go looking for trouble, you can find trouble very quickly. If you're trying to stay out of trouble, you can also stay out of trouble very easily. New York is just a land of opportunity, so you can go either way with this, and it all depends on what you want. So you as a Christian, if you want to be persecuted for your faith, it can happen within the hour. But if you're not trying... If you're not trying to make a viral video for yourself, it it might not quite look the same way as worldly suffering when a non-Christian suffers at the hands of non-Christians. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what, what will be the outcome of those who do, do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will, become the, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. 
And one last reference, 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, all that being said, yes, you can suffer as a Christian who is a meddler. You know, you just go up to cops and start harassing them. You can suffer very quickly. But by and large, if you suffer as a Christian, it's not going to be because you're a Christian. It's going to be for something else. Because in the U.S., it's totally legal to be a Christian. But still, don't, don't be surprised if you, know, you start raising your kids in, in a godly Christian way and somebody decides they don't like it and then they start looking for ways to come after you, looking for ways to harass you. All kinds of departments in the city are weaponized against Christians. It happens all the time. There are many, um, speaking, I think, this last week with someone who um, had Child Protective Services called on them with a, a, a empty, f- fake report. But nevertheless, someone was trying to, to harass them and then trying to use that city department to get after them. So do not be surprised when you suffer because of Christ. So that's number one, promise is made. The promise is that the Gentiles will be included in the gospel. It is not a promise that you, as a Christian, as a Gentile Christian, that you will be healthy, wealthy, and fine. Point two, promise is kept. So now we go back to the beginning of verse eight. Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So the way this promise has been kept, the the promise that the Gentiles would be included in this plan of salvation is that Christ would become a servant and that he would be a servant to the Jews. Jesus is the promise keeper who fulfilled the promises of God made in the Old Testament. It was under the law, under the, the Mosaic system that he lived and walked. He became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. Second Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. This is why it is through him, through Jesus, that we utter our amen to God for his glory. The promises of point one that were made are kept in Christ. Now, like we talked about in point one, promises made and promises not made, we have to talk about promises kept and promises not kept. And a promise that is not kept is a promise that was never made. So if God did not make a certain promise to you, don't be surprised if he's not keeping a certain promise that was never made. Because God keeps his promises, but those are his promises. They're his promises that he keeps. He is under no obligation to fulfill all of your hopes and dreams. Please be clear, be be crystal clear, that if you feel something in your heart that is not the same as a promise from God, You might feel something very deeply. You might be really assured within yourself that a certain thing is going to happen, but that's not the same thing as a promise from God. Beyond that, a strong desire is not the same as a promise from God. 
I've heard people say this. Oh, Andy, I have this desire. This desire came from God. God is going to give me this desire. You don't know that. And that's not a promise from God. Also beyond that, your grandmother's assurance is not a promise from God. If you have a relative in your family who tells you a certain thing is going to be, that is not the same as a promise from God. You can have wishful thinking. You can desire that a certain thing would happen, but that's not on par with a promise from God that God is obligated to keep. Now, this promise that is kept is that Christ is a savior and he offers his salvation to Gentiles as well. That brings us into our third and final point, promise is applied. This will be a little longer than point two. Promise is applied. God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. Let me ask you, have you taken hold of him? Have you taken hold of his promises? You're sitting here and you're saying, well, I'm, uh, I'm not Jewish. That means I'm a Gentile. And um, this promise is that salvation would come to the Gentiles. So I'm going to ask you, have you taken hold of this promise that salvation is available to you? Have you taken hold of him? And if not, why not? Is it because of skepticism? Is it because you you have uh, doubts and you've got objections? So let me assure you that there will always be doubts. There will always be questions that can be raised. There will always be issues that you, you could have just one more catch, one more objection. No one has ever argued into the kingdom. The objections to the Christian faith typically come down to moral objections, the matter of the will. Do you want your sin or do you want Jesus? That's what it comes down to. Have you taken hold of Christ? If not, why not? First, skepticism. Second, is it misplaced trust in the past? You trusted people before and you said, well, I'll never make that, that mistake again. I trusted someone who proved themselves untrustworthy, so I'm, I'm going to just trust in myself. Believe in myself. Have you refused to take hold of Christ because of broken promises from other people? That other person, they broke their promise, whether it was a husband or wife or a parent. The memories of failure and disappointment from those that you should have been able to trust impact your ability to trust today. If that's the case, I would comfort you first off and saying you're not alone. You're not the only one who's ever had a promise be unfulfilled to you. But secondly, I would encourage you with this or challenge you by saying that that also doesn't really matter because God doesn't break his promises. We are faithless, but God is faithful because he cannot deny himself. And so if you were looking for excuses to deny Christ and to, un, to, to disbelieve in him, to doubt his promises, you will find no shortage of opportunities to doubt the promises and faithfulness of God. But actually trusting God and trusting his promises comes first, and that reorients your relationships after that. 
promise is applied. Look at verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. This is why we're applying it, because Paul applied it. He says, may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace. But we also have to define what what hope even means. If God is going to fill you with hope, what is this that you're supposed to, to have? What is it supposed to look like? Hope is not wishful thinking, and it's also not a general optimistic personality. But rather, it's this. Hope is a confident expectation. This, this falls in the, the bucket of things that I wish that everyone here knew. I wish that I could go up to anybody and say, like, hey, Alex, what's the mission of PBC? And he would say, oh, the mission of PBC is to make disciples of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God the Father. And I would go up to Jaron and say, hey, Jaron, uh, who are we as a church? And I would hope that he would say, well, we are a group of baptized believers united in covenant to be the church and to do what churches are commanded to do. Now, we've, I've only mentioned this once in membership class, but it is on the website. <laughs> but beyond that, I would hope that you would all know what hope is. If I say, hey, um, Ben, what is hope? I would hope that Ben would say, hope is confident expectation. It's a confident expectation of the promises of God. It's not wishful thinking. It's not relentless optimism. Though those are good things, but it's more than that. It is confident expectation. Now, what we have here in verse 13, we have hope fueled joy. Hope fueled joy. May the God of hope fill you with all joy. If we have a confident expectation of the promises of God, the things that he said are true. Joy is a natural outflow of that. Joy is the natural byproduct. Joy comes when we have a confident expectation, when we have that the anchor that Hebrews talks about. No matter how bad things are around us, if we have that settled confidence, or the song says this ballast of assurance, it's the weight in the bottom of the ship that keeps the ship upright no matter what. That hope, that confidence, that anchor, that ballast, that enables us to have joy and enables us to have joy regardless of our circumstances. Hope-fueled joy. Secondly, we have hope-fueled peace. Hope-fueled peace. When you have hope and your hope is Christ, and that hope and that, that confident expectation is that the Gentiles are included in the promise of God, and hey, I'm a Gentile, you're a Gentile. If you say, well, no, I'm a Gentile, that means um, this text is applicable to me. Jesus came to save all types of sinners, and I'm one of those types that he came to save. This means the offer of salvation is available to me. I have taken hold of that. My trust is in him. My confidence is in him. And now I have peace with God. And that peace with God, which is described extensively in Romans 5, when you're reading this or studying it on your own, and you flip back to Romans 5, and you talk, see, you know, therefore we have peace with God, being justified freely by his grace. We have peace with God. Now, you're able to have peace with others as well. If you don't have peace with God, then why do you expect to ever have peace with a group of other people that have all kinds of differences with you? 
I hope Thanksgiving was a reminder to you that peace with God and, and the local church can actually be stronger and more powerful and more overcoming than, than family ties. That you actually have more in common with your brothers and sisters here in this church, in the essentials, in the things that are most meaningful than you do with a relative who maybe gave birth to you or gave birth to the one who gave birth to you. So we have peace, and this peace is fueled by our hope. And the next one is hope from the Holy Spirit. We are not the source of our own faith. We are not the source of our own hope. We are not the source of our own confidence. We don't muster these things up by by looking at the mirror and trying really hard and saying, I'm just going to really, really believe today. I'm just going to really, really have confident expectation. We are not self-saviors. We're not here on a self-help, fixing ourselves up session for about 70 years and then it's over. But rather... Christ is our Savior, and he works in our hearts and lives through the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God. This hope comes from the Holy Spirit. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. This hope from the Holy Spirit is not primarily a personality trait. You can have the most gloomy, pessimistic personality. You can be the most introverted, ornery person, but you can have hope. And you can have that hope, which is supplied by the Holy Spirit, gradually transform you into one who looks a little bit more and more and more like the fruit of the Spirit. But your peace with God is not contingent on your production of this hope. Your justification is not, is not hinging upon your performance and how good you are. But this hope that is produced by the Holy Spirit is a fruit of the, the work of the Holy Spirit. It comes after our salvation and it is a work of God in you. So I would ask you these questions. Are you doubting and fearful? Are you filled with anxiety and worry? Are those some things that you struggle with? There's all kinds of other things that, that people can struggle with. We're not really talking about that today. But if you are so often filled with doubts, fears come into your mind more than you would hope. Anxiety comes into your soul. And worry afflicts your mind. How do you get rid of that? How do you deal with that? How do you, how do you find relief? Well, the Bible here says that the hope comes from the Holy Spirit. And that hope which overrides doubts and fears and anxiety and worry, that hope comes from the Holy Spirit. So I would just encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit to give you an abundance of hope. To pray and ask him. Say, God, by your spirit, please fill me with hope. Fill me with a greater and greater sense of this confidence in you. Confident expectations of the promises of God. Confidence 
that your word is true, confidence that when you say things like, I will never leave you or forsake you, that that is true and it is more certain than whatever hardship you're going through in that moment. It's not denying the hardship that you're going through, but it's saying that I have, a, I have peace with God that inspires hope, it inspires confidence in God that is stronger than the affliction that I'm facing. I listened to a podcast on the plane yesterday of this guy who was, he's the guy who shot um, Bin Laden. Yeah, he was the, the, the front guy with SEAL Team 6, and he was literally the one who pulled the trigger when Bin Laden was three feet in front of him. And they asked, like, well, how do you know you were the one who shot? And he's like, because I did. It was me. And no one else, like, I was the front of the line. I was the one who pulled the trigger. Also, Bin Laden's wife verified it in a letter, a th- an article that she wrote that was published in a Saudi newspaper. She's like, yeah, that first guy was the one who shot him. Now, he's flying in a helicopter across, I think, Pakistan or something. And he, they're like in enemy, enemy territory, and they had a 90-minute flight where they were in range of missiles, and they could have been shot out of the air for that entire helicopter ride. And the person interviewing him asked him, like, how do you, you know, was that scary? Other people would ask him, well, what's it like to not have fear? And he said, no, no, I have fear. I have a lot of fear. But his perspective on this, I don't know if he's a a Christian or what, but his perspective was just kind of like muscle up. Just, you know, just don't think about it. Because if I do think about it, well, there's nothing I can do about it. By the time we get hit by a missile, like I'm, I'm gone. So I'm either fine or I'm gone. So I might as well not worry about it because we're either just flying through the air or we're suddenly blown up. That's not quite what we're talking about. Just, just muscling through genuine fear and anxiety, like th- there's something better than just gritting your teeth and bearing it. And that is having an object of your hope. And just flying in a helicopter, like what, 200 feet off the ground or something, and just hoping that you don't get hit. We've got something better, and that is the promises of God. The promise made, salvation would come to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. And the deeper that gospel takes root in your heart and takes control over your mind and your thinking processes and your plans, that begins to transform your actions. It transforms your impulses. It changes your automatic settings that... that that you fall into when certain things happen and you respond, well, your responses begin to change. So we have promises made, promises not made, promises kept, promises not kept, and promises applied. Let's close in prayer. Father, we pray that you would help us to be comforted by this truth. That we would understand that in this diverse body of Christ, where we are to live and work out our Christian life, that there is this very real sense of application for comfort in your promises. Help us not to add things to the promises of God which you have not 
promised us, that we would not be disappointed when we do not receive things that you never said you would give, give us, but that we would have confidence in you and our salvation, which is secure in you. And that those who do not yet know Christ, that they have not yet taken hold of Christ, that they would do that today. They would trust in him and lay aside objections and lay, lay aside these other concerns from past disappointments. And that those whose anxieties and fears fill them with concern, fill their hearts with worry, that they would cry out to you and ask you to give them hope, give them confidence in you, grow their faith, that that would help them as they will certainly experience many different types of trials that you've promised that we would receive. We would, all who suffer, all who desire to live a godly life would suffer persecution. So I pray that we would be a people who's, who grow in confidence in you and who grow in hope. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.